Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. The Desert Fathers were the earliest ones who followed the model of John the Baptist and Moses and went to the desert because the, the church had become so worldly. In Egypt and Syria in the 4th century, once the Roman Empire became Christian, they, they fled the desert in great numbers to, to find God, to get cleansed of their idolatry, to, to, to hear a word from God so they could save the church. And I think it's a very parallel situation to today that, that mm. we've got to somehow fashion a desert, get to God. So, the, so that we can save the church. There's so much idolatry and worldliness inside the church in us and me that unless we figure out how to get to the desert in the midst of our active lives, it'd be very difficult to bring a word from God with clarity. We bring an American Christianity, hmm. and that's real problematic. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick. On today's program, it is part one of a two-part conversation with author, speaker, and pastor Peter Scazzaro. Pete is the author of two best-selling books, The Emotionally Healthy Church and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He is the founder of New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York City, a large multiracial international church with 73 nationalities represented. After serving as senior pastor there at New Life Fellowship for 26 years, Pete now serves as a teaching pastor and pastor at large, along with his wife, Jerry, they founded Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, a groundbreaking ministry that equips churches in deep, beneath-the-surface spiritual formation that integrates emotional health and contemplative spirituality. On today's program, in part one, you'll hear Pete talk about his own crisis of faith, burnout, how people in his church were changing but not changing deeply, and how, through depression and anger, God got his attention where he began an inward journey. So with no further delay, let's jump into the conversation with Peter Scazzaro on Restoring the Soul. I want to just start out by, uh, by hearing a little bit about your story. I know that the big focus of what you do is teaching about how our spiritual and emotional lives get out of balance and how that plays out in unhealthy spirituality and the body of Christ. And uh, that, that, that that imbalance is really kind of causing a crisis in the body of Christ. So all of that focus that you do grew out of your own crisis, so to speak, yes. of faith. Tell us about that. I became a Christian at uh, 19 and was, got involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and other parachurch ministries, and eventually uh, went to seminary and spent a year in Central America and then planted a church in uh, September 1987. 
and in the inner city of New York. And it was a we grew very fast. I, I was your I was an evangelical poster child, I like to say I, that was me, you know. And and so you know, I, I consumed everything within our evangelical tradition about formation, discipleship, Bible study, fellowship, and so the church began to grow. And and uh, but I found myself after four, five, six years realizing something's really wrong here because I was exhausted. First of all, I was very tired. Secondly, um, I realized people were changing, but not changing deeply. And they were changing skin deep. Now, our environment in the inner city of New York, very multiracial, very multi-ethnic. And you bring together people from various cultures and races together. You put them in a community and try to live that out. Unless there's profound change, uh, it's going to be very challenging to live as a body of Christ. And, uh, but I realized that uh, as I was trying different discipleship paradigms, the word, uh, spirit's power, prophetic ministry, worship, more small groups, ministry to the poor, prayer, you name it, I realized people still weren't changing deeply. And I said, something's not right. Hmm. And then, so I, I was wrestling with this for really a few years. And as I was growing tired, my wife grew very tired. And uh, she was tired of being a single mom. We have four, four young girls at the time. And uh, then we had a split in uh, one of our congregations in Spanish. And so I got very disillusioned with that. So in 1994, uh, I found myself, this is seven years after planning the church, I, I, was, I was really wanting to get out. I, I, was, I was angry. I was tired. I was cursing the car like a truck driver <laughs> toward this fellow who had, I felt betrayed me and split off with a couple hundred people. I didn't know what to do with all my anger and rage. And so I started going to counseling. And at the time, I didn't even believe in Christian counseling. But I said, hey, I'm in such a mess right now. I'll go somewhere. But I, I really, the biggest thing is I didn't know what to do with all this rage inside. I mean, un, and, and, and unforgiveness and confusion. And so I started an inward journey in 1994. I'm not the kind of guy that would do a natural inward journey. I'm just a you know, type A, let's go do it. Let's You're a New Yorker. Happen, New Yorker. <laughs> and, you know, a good Christian leader who's going to build a church and make this thing go. And so we were, we were planting churches. I mean, we were planting churches, you know, a number of churches here in New York City. Um, but uh, God got my attention through depression, through just, just my, my anger. And through, so going to counseling, I started looking at myself on the inside, started reading different kinds of authors, like Allender and others, and, and Roman Catholics, and more contemplative type stuff, and started to look at what was going on inside of me. Maybe I'm the problem. That was a new, that was a new idea. That was a novel idea. And then for two years, I was really on an inward journey, and I was really seeing some of the holes in my evangelical theology. There were some big problems in how we do discipleship. And so I was really doing theological work. I'm a pastor. I'm not a therapist. I'm like, what's missing here? What, what, how is it that I got into this situation where I, I, my, I almost could you know, lose my marriage and lose leadership or even let's walk away from Jesus? I was so disgusted with the church. And I was trying to figure out what was going on, because I did feel the hand of God on me. I felt God's pleasure, but I couldn't figure out why everything was going so poorly. Hmm. January 1st, January 2nd, 1996, my wife comes to me, and she says, Pete, uh, I'm leaving the church. I'm going to another church. And your, your church? My church. Yeah, she's, she left my church. She said, your leadership stinks. You don't have the courage to confront people that need to be confronted. And so I'm going to another church. And that was like the bomb. Wow. So that was when I would say the rock bottom hit. And in our case, she said, uh, you know, I'm going to move back to New Jersey. And uh, 
I'm like, wow, New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> so, can anything good come out of New Jersey? Isn't it? No, Nazareth. Sorry, Nazareth. That's <laughs> it. So we went to a place for fallen pastors because we needed help desperately, and we had to sort this out. So I, I so we went for a week, and during that week, it was two counselors and just Jerry and I, and and we went there really to kind of fix. I went to fix her. She went to fix the church, but really. They focused on our marriage, and that was a shocker because we, we really had never focused on our marriage. Our marriage was about building the kingdom of God, you know, and, and we had a love for each other. We just didn't know how to love each other. We, we, we never got discipled in our marriage. We just figured, hey, we're Christians. We love Jesus. It's all going to work out just fine. And during that week, uh, God just came. And it was just, it was like being born again, again. Wow. And my two years of reflecting on what was wrong theologically, it all came together. And it, very simple, it's that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. That you can't say you're spiritually mature if you're emotionally immature. And I realized I was a senior pastor of a decently large church, and I was an emotional infant. Wow. My own wife didn't feel loved by me. And here I am under the illusion, I'm going to raise up mothers and fathers out of faith that are going to make an impact for the kingdom of God. So that was the beginning of this whole journey into emotionally healthy wow. spirituality. Let me just stop you right there yeah. and say how refreshing it is to hear uh, a pastor, much less a, a, a public author, writer like yourself, to talk so honestly about you know, your own brokenness. And um, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you, is I think there's great, great, great power in that, to be able to say that uh, how I've been doing my faith and my walk with Jesus really doesn't connect with my life, my emotional life. So out of your own brokenness, this movement has been launched. Tell us about what that movement looks like. Well, I don't know about a movement. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just, our, our goal initially was just to try to walk it out ourselves. This is 1996. You understand, like, we, we felt like we'd left the shore, like trying to integrate some of these things like leading out of brokenness, embracing limits, loving well as the measure of maturity, uh, doing family of origin work as part of your discipleship, as okay. integral to discipleship, breaking the power of the past, you know, d- deeply looking inside at your motives, your fe- learning to feel, and offering after Christ. These are all radical concepts at the time for us. So we said, we got to start walking this out. And we decided we're going we're gonna to minister, and we're going to lead out of our marriages, our marriage, and out of a cup running over. We'd never sacrifice our marriage again. We're going to love Jesus, take care of ourselves, and love each other, and our kids, and after that, the church. I mean, and, and if the minute... Our cup ceased overflowing. We would resign and go do something else. Uh, Because God never asked us to die to a wonderful marriage. And we tasted heaven in our marriage. And we weren't going to lose that again. Hmm. And so uh, I didn't write anything for for seven years, actually. I just just kept basically um, like good wine, you know, just aging it. Hmm. And so I wrote The Emotional Healthy Church in 2003. And uh, it came out the same time as Purpose Driven Life. And I, I'm an un, I was an unknown guy from Queens. And so I, but I had a friend who worked at Zondervan, and he was an editor, and he'd been following our journey for a long time. He says, Pete, I, I think this, you know, it's worth writing, but I want you to know that it's going to be, you know, there's no advertising dollars about this thing. It's just, it's a, it's a, we don't, I, I can't tell you anything's going to happen with it, but I think it's a good message. And so I want you to put in writing this, your story in Emotionally Healthy Church and this integral discipleship you're talking about. So I wrote it, and and, uh, and and the book did nothing. I mean, I, I didn't have any kind of national platform. I was just in Queens, inner city church. And the book actually sold very little when it first came out. Hmm. 
200 copies, 100 copies. And, and I just, and I, I, I was, of course, like, I felt, I said, no, this is a revelation from God. I just can't figure out why no one's buying it. But no one really knew about it. And then it began to just spread from word of mouth. And then this thing kind of e- emerged. Um, because I did a lot of theological work, actually, with it. I went back to my professors. I knew where pastors were at in terms of cynicism. I did not want to be clumped there. Oh, this is psychology. This mm. is like psychologizing the gospel. I wanted to put a theological framework that was very solid, but yet not too solid that people wouldn't read it, you know, not too right. dense. So I, I spent years working on that. I mean, I went to professors at Princeton Seminary and Gordon-Conwell and Eastern Baptist, and I worked very hard at saying, we got, this, has, this has to be an air-shut case, because I know how pastors think. They find right. the biggest reason not to feel or not to be honest with themselves, and they'll slip away and blame me, you know, for for being, uh, you know, theologically slippery. Hmm. And so I, I think as a result, the book was very, was pretty air-shut case, very difficult to argue with loving well right. and grieving when you got a book called Lamentations, <laughs> and two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. And yet we have, you know, who, who learns how to grieve well? You know, who has a theology of grieving? We just stuff it and move on. No class like that in seminary. Yeah, that's all right. We, we get addicted. Well, we do addiction, and uh, we get it. We medicate ourselves or our pain. So, anyway, I think the you know it just kind of grew gradually over time. And so, I mean, I'm still pastoring New Life Fellowship Church, and and uh, so I'm very limited in what I can do externally. And then we got into monasticism. It kind of led us naturally. To, we slowed down our lives, and I kept exploring this monastic tradition as something. I I, I, I just I still felt like people were too busy. For some of our listeners who may not be familiar with monasticism or maybe have a, a liturgical background, can you define monasticism? Yeah, let, let me. maybe I should use the word contemplative spirituality, okay. slowing down to be with God. So not chanting in robes no, per se. No, no, okay. no, no. But it comes out of—the monastic tradition goes back to Moses in the wilderness for hmm. 40 years. It goes back to Elijah in the desert uh, where he lived and dealt with Ahab and Jezebel. It goes back to John the Baptist. I mean, that's a tradition of monasticism. And Jesus in the desert. And so it's, it's, it's coming out of a deep place with God out of which you bring a word of God. And silent solitude. And, and so the, the desert fathers were the earliest ones who followed the model of John the Baptist and Moses and went to the desert. Because the, the church had become so worldly in Egypt and Syria in the 4th century once the Roman Empire became Christian. They, they fled the desert in great numbers to, to find God, to get cleansed of their idolatry, to, to, to hear a word from God so they could save the church. And I think it's a very parallel situation to today that, that mm. we've got to somehow fashion a desert, get to God, so, the, so that we can save the church. There's so much idolatry and worldliness inside the church in us and me that unless we figure out how to get to the desert in the midst of our active lives, it'd be very difficult to bring a word from God with clarity. Mm. We bring an American Christianity, mm. and that's real problematic. Say more about fashioning a desert. Well, I, you know, so, so for us, what happened, we, in 2004, early, we, we took a sabbatical for four months, my wife and I, and uh, we basically committed to live uh, a, a life of silence and solitude. We joined and lived in various monasteries for that time and entered into a rhythm. We left our tradition as evangelicals. Now, understand, I'm in New York City, so I've got you know, 400,000 cars that pass our building every day. I've got 70,000 people on a square block. I've got enormous density of population and needs. Uh, so silence and solitude is obviously not built into the culture. But um, we had an experience in that four months. We realized that, you know, how busy, you, know, you just realize how active our tradition is. We're not good at 
rest. We're not good at stillness. We're not good at silence. And I think something came so alive in us, Jerry and I, in this four months, that we actually, we seriously wondered if God was calling us to a monastic life. Mm, Wow. Um, Because we experienced a communion with God, a rhythm as we entered into daily offices. We spent a lot of time with the Trappists. And so as we began to engage in rhythms, monastic rhythms, we did it personally ourselves. As always, let's do it ourselves. And then we'll bring it to our leadership and slowly to our church. And then again, to our surprise, when I, as our church began to live it out, and it shocked us. It really shocked us. We thought the church might throw us out. Huh. Um, but surprisingly, it just exploded something into new life as we brought this contemplative into a... We're, we're kind of a charismatic, high-powered, high-energy church. Kids coming in do-rags, very young, very, again, multiracial. And it surprised us, the enormous change that started happening in people just by integrating this into part of the, the, wow. the thing. That's why I, I wrote Emotionality and Spirituality. Same thing. No one thought anything would happen with the book just because it was kind of like really far out emotional health with the contentless and I, you know. And I remember the, you know, the publisher just said, ah, it's a little too dense. It's a little too heavy. And they really wanted something much more pop. And I just said, I'm not, I just, I can only write out of what I'm living here right. and just let it go. And, and uh, again, same thing. I think we're very surprised by the response. Do you think it's just that the, the, the people in the church were so hungry for yeah. that? Yes, absolutely. I think that that's just our church. I think the, the response to emotional and spirituality stunned us in terms of the hunger for the contemplative and emotional health together was so enormous that all of a sudden we found ourselves like now there was like this movement thing happening. Mm-hmm. And actually, globally, all of a sudden, it got to like yeah. South Africa and Germany and Russia. Asia. I've been in Asia and seen your material. Have you? Yeah. yeah. So it's been quite surprising to us. And uh, I, I think I don't. Obviously, we're not the only ones. I think you know, in this, the Holy Spirit clearly is moving globally in the church, of a hunger away from this American Western, super active, consumer-driven, numbers-driven Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think that what. We are simply as, I think we just, I, I probably just expressed it as a pastor. I'm unlike like Larry Crabb or uh, Dan Allender. I'm a local church pastor. I'm not, you know, I'm not a professor. I'm not a therapist. I'm just, I'm a pastor trying to work, walk this out. Right. So I've actually moved our church, for example, to a rule of life for a membership. But we still have a thousand people. We have well, well over a thousand people in our church. So, but they're committed to a rule of life to be part of our church. So for example, uh, our rule, uh, a rule is a, a, to explain what it is, every, every church membership class is a rule of life. They just don't call it that. It's a trellis or a structure to help you follow Christ. So I join your church because I like the way your church does spirituality, it helps me grow, so I join. So I like your trellis, I like your rule. But most people are unconscious of all that. We decided to make it conscious. So we moved our, our membership uh, to the, a rule of life and we said, what's our DNA? Who are we? And so for us, for example, in our rule is the first, it says it's broken up in four categories. The first is prayer, and it's got some elements under it. For example, to love uh, Jesus Christ above all else. Uh, secondly is to befriend silence. Third is to, in, to incorporate contemplative practices, daily offices, Sabbath, into your life, rhythms of, of offices. And so things like so things like that. Um, then you got emotional health. You know, uh, practice emotional healthy practices to love well. You know, speak the truth first to yourself, then to others. Bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. So it's got it's got a heavy thrust on prayer, heavy thrust on rest, and then it moves to body life. Then it moves to mission. 
So, so it's, a, it's an inward and then uh, an outward. So it, it's not just uh, gazing at the navel, but it's, it's getting filled so that you can then spill over, as you yeah, talked about. Yeah, and I think part of our attractiveness has been that we are in New York City and we are very missional. Uh, I think we're trying to hold that together. Uh, so we've got a medical clinic for the poor. We've got a food pantry. that f- We're probably one of the biggest feeders of poor people in the, in, in, in the city of New York right now. And the city gives us food. We feed so many people. So we're in an area that's low income. And so, and, and we're involved in, in leading people to a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're very committed to that. So, I, I, I mean, I'm evangelical. The best of evangelicalism, I think we still are and we're committed to. And our tradition has some great strengths to it, but it has some big weaknesses. And the weaknesses do have to do with we're not reflective, we're not good at stillness, and we're not good at silence and rest. And it really colors the way we build our churches, and it impacts the way we do mission. It hurts us. Mm. And I think people are very tired. I think people are very hungry and desperate. So I, I expect, and I think there are people creating new models all over the world right now in a church. I think we're just one. Uh, in a particular context, but there's clearly the Holy Spirit's moving. There's a, it's amazing to me. Hmm. There's some crazy stuff going on, right? Some fluffy <laughs> stuff, but, but and young young generations really hungry. Our church has grown younger. I mean, it's amazing to me how many younger people have poured into our church. I I, I think it's a it's another it's another phenomenon we have. So, what does that look like with uh, the the young guy with the do rag on his head who's from an urban background? What does it look like when he gets a hold of slowing down and contemplative practices? Yeah. Well, everybody's urban in our church. That's where our church is. Okay. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think the human, we were created, everyone needs silence. You were created for a rhythm of silence. And so even if I close a message out, I'll say, we're going to have five minutes of silence now as a church. And I want you to be still and uh, get comfortable here. And we're going to be still before the Lord. We're not just still before nothing. We're going to be still before him. I'll tell you, you hear a pin drop in the place. Hmm. And so I've seen as part of our training and part of our discipleship is, but people's souls come alive because mm. we were created for a diet of, of silence. And even just how we read scripture, we savor scripture, but we actually meditate on it. Like the monastics, you know, Lectio Divina, we, we may ponder a phrase all through the day, but I'm meditating on the law day and night. But it's a very, if Christ isn't Lord of your life, you're probably not going to go down this road. And, and along those lines, unless you've somehow touched on your own brokenness or emotional unhealth, there may not be a compelling need to go there into that silence either. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think so. I, but, you know, I, I find there's two classes of people, Michael. I think there's, I, I meet people that are into um, emotional health. I do, they do therapy. They go to 12-step groups. We have a lot of 12-step people in our group, our church. Um, but I meet a lot of people like that, but they don't have any walk with God. Then I meet people who are really into silence and the walk with God and the Bible, but they don't have any kind of emotional health. They're, they're, they're unaware, they're touchy, they're defensive. To me, the power is you bring them both together. You've got a, a willingness to go deep beneath that iceberg and do the emotional work, let Christ change all of you. At the same time, you're committed to a passion for God. It's like David. David, that's David, right? He's, he's fully expressive emotionally, pouring out his heart, but it's before God. Saul is the opposite. Saul has emotional, he's unaware, and he has, he has a superficial walk with God. Most people I meet, Michael, are not cultivating their personal relationship with Jesus. Hmm. It shocks me. They live off the pastor's sermons. They're living off someone else, what they talk about. They, they're not cultivating their relationship with Jesus. This is my life, my communion with him. 
And would you say the same is true in light of your story about the average Christian leader, pastor, missionary? Oh, I think we're, we're products of our whole evangelical culture. Yeah, that was certainly my story as well, until I crashed and burned. Yeah, so I, I don't think, I, I'm finding that you don't have to crash and burn. I think it has to do with, I think our discipleship and our formation, the way we do it generally in the church is, is weak, it's, in, it's distorted. It's leaving out large segments of spiritual formation. And you just can't have people do, 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 grow these numbers in a church and think you're going to build a healthy community without profound transformation taking place in people. But I went, but I never did it myself. How am I going to lead a church into it? Hmm. So, you know, I I see it's a new day. I think seminaries are struggling with it now Mm -hmm. and wrestling with it. I think the answer is going to be much more far-reaching than people realize. I think it's going to take a lot more. That's a lot more change. That's why I believe monasticism is a good model for us only because it's a radical shift. It's not just more spiritual disciplines. Oh, add silence, add solitude, add, you know, Bible study. No, no, it's not. A, it's deeper. We, we've got to see ourselves as we've left the world. We're in it, but we've left. And we have a call to the desert to be with God. Yeah. That's my life. So when I leave pastoring, my first work is still to be with God. Almost That's a, a yeah. far more soulish kind of thing. And that was, that was another question I want to ask, is that um, have you seen that people start to do the disciplines almost like a smorgasbord of spiritual practices as a way of just working harder and doing more activity as opposed to doing the inner work? Oh, that, that was my experience prior to this entry into contemplative spirituality. Okay. You know, I just call slowing down to be with God. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I think that in evangelicals, that's a big problem. We just add discipline. So it's possible to enter into spiritual formation and spiritual discipline without necessarily allowing it to shape your soul and bring transformation. Yes. Okay. Every, every great gift of God, I think, can be misused or become a works righteousness where it loses its very value of why you get into the first place, right? So okay. I, see, and I, I see the younger generation, which I'll call now the 20s and teens, and maybe early 30s, I think uh, really disillusioned with the megachurch movement, with my generation. I'm in my early 50s. And I I see them some, I I see a lot of confusion looking for new models. I see a lot of, I see some folks going off the deep end. I see some jettisoning church altogether. Um, I see this whole emergent model. I don't fully understand it. Um, I see a weak ecclesiology I have a great love for the church. I believe in the church. Um, but there's a great hunger among the young generation, tremendous hunger for God. I think they need some leadership. I think they need some good theology around them. But I think they're on the right track of saying we want to engage all of our senses. We want to engage authenticity. They're very broken. They're as broken as we were, if not more. And they want real relationships. And that's why emotional health is extremely attractive, extremely attractive. And uh, we actually have a dilemma at our church of so many people getting married that we just were inundated with young people getting married. We don't have the capacity to marry all these people or even train them. It's just, but it's wonderful because they're hungry for healthy marriages. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at restoringthesoul.com. Restoring the Soul.